We'll hear argument now, number 01584, Wayne Adams versus Florida Power Corporation and Florida Progress Corporation. Mr. Crabtree. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. There are three core reasons why the Court should hold the disparate impact is an available method of proof in age discrimination cases. First, the Court held in Griggs that identical prohibitory language prohibited facially neutral actions by an employer that disproportionately impacted the protected class. Mr. Crabtree, we're not talking about a situation where you're claiming that the fact of disparate impact gives rise to a permissible inference of intentional discrimination. You're relying just on disparate impact alone, are you not? No, Your Honor. Uh, we believe that disparate impact both serves um, the purpose of proving indirectly that perhaps subconscious biases exist, um, as well as detecting uh, biases that could otherwise be concealed. Well, now, in, in Washington against Davis, we held that uh, disparate impact was not enough by itself under the statute or constitutional, that, but you could infer from it a, an intent to discriminate. Now, are you, uh, I didn't get the impression from the Court of Appeals opinion that you were arguing that this plan by the respondent supports an inference of an intent to discriminate on the basis of age. We believe it does support um, an inference of intent, but an intent that does not need to be proven, that it justifies, that it can justify um, the necessity for the doctrine, because without it, it would be easy for an employer to conceal its intent. For an example, an employer could choose a, a device like a, a five-year rule in which they said that we won't hire anybody with more than five years' experience or we'll have speed tests. Well, that's a very handy prophylactic rule, but with it, once you, once you acknowledge that, uh, that indeed the, the, the malicious intent is, is necessary, with it, with the rule that you propose, you're going to get a lot of employers who have no such malicious intent. Uh, uh, Justice Scalia, we're not su- su- suggesting that malicious intent is required at all for disparate impact. We're suggesting okay. that disparate impact will detect that as well, or at least will prevent You, you just say it's bad in itself. It is not bad because it, it, it shows malicious intent. Th- that's certainly true. We, we absolutely believe that. Because we- if, it's, if the only reason it's bad is because it shows a malicious intent, my goodness, it seems to me it goes much too far. There are a lot of employers who have in place policies that, that, that may uh, affect uh, uh, elderly uh, employees uh, more, more harshly who, you know, have no, no intent to do that. That's certainly true, and the, definitely the doctrine goes beyond that. But what we're suggesting is that it will, it will also, it also prevents an employer from being able to hide behind a Well, but you want us to consider the case on the assumption that the employer uh, has a, a, a no intent to discriminate. He, he's actually has a, his, his intentions are absolutely pure, but in some instances he's still going to be liable under under the adverse or that's disparate, a, pardon me, disparate impact theory. In many instances, that is correct, Justice. Kennedy. And that's your position. That, that is our right. position. That's correct. Okay, so you're relying on disparate impact alone. That is correct, Your Honor. May I ask, because it's always helpful to me to know what's at stake in the particular case. What is the practice that you claim has a disparate impact in this case? What we have alleged, and we've contended in this case, is that the employer's reduction in force um, has had a disparate impact upon the older workers, the selection device of the reduction of force. Are you saying reductions in force are always practices that, if they have a disparate impact, give rise to a uh, 
a, a age discrimination claim? No, Your Honor, because in virtually every instance where there's a reduction in force, it will be quite easy for an employer to satisfy the defense under the reasonable factors of an age provision of the Act. Well, what is different about the reduction in force in this case? Well, in, in this case, uh, Your Honor, as the District Court acknowledged in its opinion uh, that we're proceeding from, we had evidence at the uh, highest levels that the decision to undertake the uh, downsizing was actually a decision to get rid of uh, intended to get rid of older workers. However, as the it's district, a disparate treatment claim, unfortunately, it's not, Your Honor, because as the district court judge uh, acknowledged, we could not make a disparate treatment case under these facts because in a disparate treatment case, we'd still have to prove, unless we can make a cat's paw analysis, the um, actual that the actual decision maker harbored an animus against the employee who was terminated. But what we're suggesting under this model and under the, under this framework is that if we can make a prima facie case of disparate impact, then the employer can justify that impact by showing that its decision was based upon reasonable factors and that those reasonable factors — But this is when I — excuse me for interrupting, but is it the decision to downsize that it has to be reasonable or the particular discharge decisions on each individual that have to be reasonable? We have identified in this case the, the action of the employer as being the decision to downsize itself. The decision to downsize itself. Which in most instances will be much more difficult probably for plaintiffs than it would be if you went on a more micro level. However, we — Why would it be more difficult? All you have to prove, if I understand your theory, is that there are more older workers in the group that were discharged than younger workers. Well, it would have to be a a substantially disparate impact between the two groups. Um, It would be more difficult because it would be much easier for an employer to justify a reduction in force in — almost any circumstance. I thought you conceded that it was not enough for you to show disparate impact, that you had, that, say, 70 percent of the people. And my problem with your presentation is the same as Justice Stevens. In every uh, disparate impact case that I know, a rule neutral is on its face, but disparate in impact, like the high school diploma requirement in Griggs, there is the standard that has a differential effect, a high school diploma, a pen and paper test, as in uh, Washington v. Davis, a height-weight requirement, as in Dothlet against Rawlinson. But you don't come to us with any rule, standard, practice. You just say reduction in force. Well, what we're saying is this, is that um, the Court indicated in Ward's Cove that a plaintiff in an age, in a discrimination case, is to identify a specific practice or action by an employer that results in disparate impact that cannot be justified. We have identified this downsizing as being such a practice because we don't believe the employer can justify it because the downsizing was motivated by desire to get rid of Don't we leave motive out of it for purpose? Forget motive. Let's imagine that in your case, that's what I thought this case was about. We imagine in your case the employer had a wonderful motive. There are other cases where the rule in question was we are going to fire some tenured teachers to save money. That was the real reason, to save money. But tenured teachers tend to be older teachers. There was another case in which uh, uh, they said the court uh, looked at a rule that said we will fire people in the higher-paid positions. 
That was their real reason, to save money. But the Court said each of those rules, like your case, too, has a disparate impact on older employees. And just saving money is not a justification, and therefore the plaintiff wins. Now, I take it that's the proposition you're defending. We are defending that okay. proposition. Okay. And that, right. the other parts, to me, are easy. Of course you can use it to, to, to prove bad motive, etc. But that's the hard proposition. Now, I wish you would explain why, as a matter of law, that tough proposition nonetheless is the law. Well, we believe it's the law because the prohibitions themselves, uh, as construed in Griggs, apply to facially neutral actions. And then the reasonable fact — Well, but the background in Griggs was racial uh, discrimination. And the policies there uh, seem to me to rest on a long history of societal and historical bias against uh, black people. Now, we don't have that background with age discrimination, do we? No, no Justice O'Connor, we do not. So it, it might be quite a different proposition here. Respectfully, no, Your Honor, and here's why. Um, as the Court acknowledged in Watson, the Court has not limited a disparate impact to remedying past problems with discrimination. This disparate impact goes beyond that. Disparate impact exists to detect subconscious Stereotypes operating in the workforce, exactly what the Court identified as the primary form of discrimination that exists under the idea. Thirdly, in Griggs, the Court said that, that the legislative purpose of the Act was, quote, plain from the language of the statute. So the Court was looking at the statute itself. Uh, for, That's uh, a good idea. What is the statute that we're dealing with here? Uh, the statute uh, — Look at the language of the statute. Sure, Your Honor. It's on page 5A, the appendix to the petitioner's brief. And when you look at the statute itself, what you see between A1 and A2 is the difference between a micro and a macro orientation. In A1, we're concerned about an employer's individual actions directed towards an individual employee. But in A2, we're concerned with an employer's macro actions directed towards its employees and how that impacts individuals. In each, in each of those cases, Mr. Crabtree, it says because of such individuals' age. Now, doesn't that suggest that there is some motive requirement? No, Your Honor. It, it does, it, we don't believe it does, and, and I'll explain why. When you look at A2, the clause, because of such individual's age, the word individual is critical because at the beginning of 2, it reads, to limit, segregate, or classify his employees in any way which would deprive or tend to deprive any individual of employment opportunities or otherwise adversely affect his status as an employee because of such individual's age. So the clause relates to the effect and not to the motive of the actor. I would think it relates to, uh, to the, the limit, segregate, segregate or classify. It, it cannot, Your Honor, because the word his employees follows those uh, verbs. In any event, the wording is identical to Title VII, and Title VII and that wording has been held to have this differential impact theory for sex as well as race. That's absolutely correct, Justice Ginsburg. And, of course, the Congress has never acted 
to expressly prohibit disparate impact under Title VII. The only prohibition of disparate impact under Title VII is in its aid to, as the Court construed in Griggs and Griggs' progeny. Was, was this language adopted in this form after it had been clearly established that the Title VII language did include disparate impact? Which, no, you know, as an original matter, I wouldn't have thought it did. Oh, it did not. But we held that. Now, now, was this language adopted after we held that or before it? It was before, Your Honor. Well, it certainly was. However — After Title VII, but before Griggs. That's correct. And to hold that this language does not prohibit disparate impact would mean that there was no disparate impact under Title VII. Even in the 1991 Civil Rights Act, all Congress did was define a defense. But, but it, it seems to me that uh, even if we accept your reading of the statute, which I am not sure is the more natural reading, you still have because of such individual's age, that is to say the what you would call disparate impact, what the statute says adverse impact, must still be because of such individual's age. And if we think because of um, implies or, 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 or necessarily requires uh, a, a bad purpose, uh, you still have the same problem. If because of did require a bad purpose, we would. However, there's two reasons why we can — it is not. One is the um, — the first one is that the reasonable factors other than age defense cannot make sense if uh, the prohibitions only apply to intentional actions. Why don't well, they make sense Well, now you're going on to the second uh, — another — but, but, but I'm, just I'm focusing on this uh, uh, A2 — it seems to me that your reading of the statute doesn't explain the because of. Then you have you have to go to this other part of the statute, which you have to do anyway. Well, I'm relying. Well, on I mean, this whole argument over how to interpret two. It seems to me it doesn't get you there. Well, again, we're relating the because of back to the effect upon the individual, and we're relying upon the court's interpretation of that language in Griggs. Well, you, but, you, well, one one might feel that uh, Griggs is stare decisis because it can, but feel that it, perhaps its reasoning would not readily be extended if there was some reason for distinguishing it. That might make sense. I, I would agree, Your Honor. However, we don't believe there's any basis to distinguish here, given the Court's subsequent cases post-Griggs. But as, I wanted, as, may I go back to the question that we opened with, and that is, I don't know of any case in, in, under Title VII where someone could just say, reduction in force, it affected more women than men, therefore I have an impact case, or reduction in force, it affected more minorities than majorities, so therefore. It's always been some specific practice that you could identify some rule, some neutral rule. In fact, it's even sometimes referred to as neutral on its face, discriminatory in impact. And here I don't — reduction in force in and of itself is not such — a neutral rule. It's, it's too general. It's, so I, what is the precise rule practice standard that's comparable to a high school diploma, a height and weight? What is there in this case? Well, Your Honor, I have two answers. First of all, that we equate a reduction in force to a test. It's a selection process. We're not challenging a question on the test. We're challenging the test itself. But even if the Court were to find that we've inadequately identified the action of the employer that should be subject to disparate impact analysis, we would still — this is an interlocutory proceeding — we would 
be happy to proceed on the uh, theory as the Court redefines or the Court defines disparate impact under the idea. We would amend our complaint in accordance with the Court's ruling. I don't think that the District Court finding allows you to say the the standard is the reduction itself because the District Judge said that the people involved held a wide variety of jobs, were managed and supervised by different people, and were terminated at different times by different decision-makers based on different considerations of criteria. And that seems to me just wholly to reject that there is a rule, a standard. The reason, I, I, the reason why we believe it's important to be able to do, to do the analysis with the reduction of force being the action is because otherwise it would allow an employer to purposely choose to do a reduction in force for the, uh, to get rid of its older workers where there is a corporate culture pervaded by ageism and have consequences as it did here where it greatly um, reduced the age of, of its workforce. What However, is your cl- closest precedent under Title VII dealing with race or dealing with sex where you have something so grandly general as a reduction in force with different decisions, different standards, different times? There are cases dealing with uh, reduction in force under Title VII. There's one, uh, NAACP versus Medical Center, Inc. It was out of the Third Circuit, uh, 657 F. 2nd, 1322. There have probably been others. Uh, and, and nothing more specific than a reduction in force? Candidly, uh, Justice Ginsburg, I don't recall. I just know that I just — Mr. Crabtree, I, th- I thought — The question on which we, we granted certiorari was not whether this — particular uh, claim of disparate impact was uh, too general or not specific enough, but whether the whole, well, I'll read it, is a disparate impact method of proving age discrimination available to plaintiffs. That's I, correct, I, Justice Scalia. So, I, you know, I'd, I'd really And, and I, I would hope that you would address Justice Breyer's uh, question in, 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 in which he said, why, why, sh- why should we do this to say the tenured employees or the higher salaried employees. What would be the justification in a case such as that for using uh, your theory of liability? Well, in most instances, um, employers are going to be able to explain why it engages in any selection process. However, in most instances, they can't explain it very well. In most instances, I think in a business or a university, you begin to look into it, and it dissolves in front of your eyes. And people say you could do it this way, you could do it that way, you could do some other way, and it'll turn out you haven't thought about it that much. Now, it may well be sensible to make an employer go to that effort where you're talking about race and gender. And uh, uh, yet here, there are so many rules correlated with age. There are so many that how could the employer run his business where you're going to have a court second-guessing every single rule that's uh, uh, correlated with age? That's the problem. What's your response? And that may very well be why Congress chose to use the reasonable factors other than age language. And that is why there are, although we don't agree with them, why there are good intellectual arguments that reasonable factors other than age is something less than business necessity, that it is easier to justify than business. Would your test be? I mean, do you think the Ninth Circuit in the cases I mentioned was right? I mean, if you're going to apply exactly the same tough tests as in these other places, maybe they were. But what's your opinion about that? We believe that the term is ambiguous, and we believe for that reason the Court should defer to the EEOC's interpretation. Which is what? Say, say what you think the form of words is. That it, it is that the employer must justify the action as being business necessity. That, that 
reasonable factors other than age provision doesn't really solve Justice Breyer's problem, does it? Because it puts the burden on the employer to establish that, doesn't it? It does, Your Honor. So you're still in the situation where the employer said, well, he could have done it a lot of different ways. And you're saying, well, I'm sorry, that's no good. But if the employer must only show that its action was reasonable, it is not as demanding as showing that it was necessary. Well, say emphasize well it's still a burden on him. It is still a burden on him. Yes, Your Honor. The um, — may, may I go back to the — Please. Okay. May I go back to your, your argument of a minute ago that the, that the various defenses make no sense except on a, on a disparate impact theory uh, or the possibility of disparate impact theory? What is your response to the argument that they make equally good sense uh, on, on the theory uh, that they respond to mixed motive? Discharges. What, what's your answer? They don't make sense on a mixed motive analysis because in a mixed motive analysis there is still an issue as to whether or not the employer's illegal motive caused an illegal action. Uh, in a in a statute, it provides that the action is otherwise prohibited. So we already have an action that is itself a violation of the act, but for the defense that follows, we don't have the same concerns we have in a mixed motive case where we don't know if the motive of the employer actually caused the action. It's already been determined as a premise of the defense. The, there's an additional reason why we believe that the Court should hold the disparate impact applies under the idea. And that is, Congress passed the OWBPA and provided that employees who were terminated in reductions in force should be entitled to — we're entitled to receive statistical information prior to deciding whether or not to take a termination package, presumably of substantial economic value, or take their chances in litigation. Given that disparate treatment can generally not be predicated upon nothing more than statistics, and given that employees terminated in rifts usually do not have an independent basis to suspect that they are being singled out for discrimination, Mr. Crampton, can I just come back for a moment to, 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 to your argument, which I think is an important one, that uh, some of the defenses don't make sense unless there is a uh, uh, discriminatory impact uh, um, uh, basis. Uh, what about the defense uh, that, that says it, it will not be unlawful to discharge or otherwise discipline an individual, an individual for good cause? I mean, that's obviously a redundancy. It could only apply to an intentional discrimination case, not to a, not, not to an impact case. But it's obviously redundant because if, if you're disciplining him for good cause, you're obviously not disciplining him with the motive of punishing his age. It's just thoroughly redundant. It seems to me a lot of these defenses are redundant. They're, 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 they're just there to make clear that there are safe harbors, one of which is disciplining an individual for good cause. Another one is observing the terms of, uh, uh, of a seniority system and so forth. Well, when you're observing the terms of a seniority system, um, you know, you, you may be looking at age directly. You may have — you can easily have a violation that exists under the Act otherwise. Well, no, I don't. Well, I don't. I don't know any seniority systems that go on the basis of people's age, as opposed to how long they've been working there. 
You know, seniority systems say, you know, you have more seniority uh, if you're 65 or? Um, I, I'm not sure, Your Honor. I don't, I don't have an answer to that. But I don't think that we can disregard the words of the reasonable factors other than age uh, provision in this case. I don't think we can ignore the term reasonable factors. And when you look at, at, at F1 and you look. It's redundant. It's just, just redundant the way to discharge a, it, it's lawful to discharge a, um, an individual for good cause. Of course it's redundant. You don't have to say that once you say that there has to be either intentional discrimination or, as you would say, um, uh, adverse impact. You're talking about disciplining an individual. You really don't need that. It, once you say there has to be intentional discrimination, but it's there just to make everything that much clearer. And you can make the same argument about the BFOA uh, uh, provision. You might be able to make that argument, but it is not the most logical argument. It does not respect Congress's words. Uh, it does not respect the fact that uh, the Congress required that the factors not just be neutral, but that they be reasonable. Because even if we ignore the otherwise prohibited language, Justice Scalia, we still have to give effect to the term reasonable. Congress did not merely require that the um, factors exist or that they be legitimate or bona fide as in the EPA or, or Gun as Gunther acknowledged, but that they be reasonable as well. And I don't want I, — I think you should be able to reserve your rebuttal time, but I, I do have one, one question. You, you seem to accede to Justice O'Connor's suggestion uh, that uh, Briggs involving uh, racial discrimination involve deeply rooted attitudes which call for special rules and that those just don't apply with the age factor. Would you want us to write the opinion that way, or are there some — subtle biases against uh, elderly workers uh, that are important uh, to support your theory. Uh, If you train a worker, uh, you're going to get a a better return on your investment as the worker is younger, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, That's certainly true, Justice Kennedy. There are those subtle biases, and that's what the Secretary Wartz's report acknowledged. And that's what uh, the Court acknowledged in in Hazen paper when it said that subtle biases, uh, stereotypes are what are largely an issue, not animus, in age discrimination. And that is consistent with the Court's holding in Watson that disparate impact exists largely to detect subtle biases. If I may, Your Honor, I'll reserve the remainder of my time. Very well, Mr. Crabtree. Uh, Mr. Nager, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, if I may, I'd like to address why fully consistent and giving full respect to Griggs versus Duke Power Company this Court can and should hold that the Age Discrimination and Employment Act does not make uh, — Even dis- though the language is essentially the same. Justice O'Connor, it's not. It is common language in Section 4. But this Court doesn't construe language in a statute in isolation from the remainder of the statute. And the remainder of this statute is quite different. The remainder of this statute includes the reasonable factors other than age provision. The remainder of this statute is based upon a report of a Secretary of Labor which said that the problems of age discrimination in the workplace were quite distinct and quite different from the problems that motivated the enactment of Title VII. And it's the problems that motivated the enactment of Title VII which gave rise to Griggs. That's what this Court said in Griggs. It's what your opinion for the Court says in Watson. So what if we, if we look at the statute and statutory language not in isolation, because, we, in fact, we can read all of the Court's Title VII disparate impact cases and we won't see the language parsed. 
the Court looked at that language in terms of the overall objectives of the statute and rendered a decision in light of the distinct and enormous problems of race discrimination that this country has faced and dealt with. Age discrimination, the Congress itself recognized, was different. That's why it didn't include age in Title VII. Instead, it commissioned a report from the Secretary of Labor as, tell us about the problems of older workers, recommend legislation to us. And the bill, the, the report that was commissioned was submitted. This Court repeatedly in EEOC versus Wyoming, in Hayes and Paper, has repeatedly recognized that that report set the foundation. Well, I, I thought you were uh, going to tell us that because of age is one of your strongest points. Uh, and as Justice O'Connor said, that's the same language structure that we had in, in Griggs and, and, and that we would have to interpret them differently. You're, you're right, Justice Kennedy, in that. But, 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 then you, but then you automatically uh, throw me over, I guess, to Part F uh, and talk about reasonable factors other than age, which is exactly what the petitioner wanted to do. It, it, that, that's uh, my lack of clarity, Justice Kennedy. Um, what we're suggesting to the Court is the more natural construction of the language in 4A, the because of language, is an intent requirement. The fact of that intent requirement is confirmed and compelled by the remaining provisions in the statute. Our suggestion is just as your opinion in public employees' retirement system versus vets did. May I just interrupt? I want to be sure I understand. You think that because of such individuals' age or so, or normally refers to the very first part of the paragraph which talks in the plural rather than the singular? Yes, Justice Stevens, because the structure of the statute says that uh, the employer can't limit, segregate, or classify as employees in a way that has an adverse effect on, on an individual. any individual. Because of such individual's age. Right. The, the, the effect the, that that modifies, not the classification. No. The, the, the comma in that provision, I think, uh, eliminates any ambiguity about what the because of phrase uh, modifies, that it modifies the, the verbs uh, to limit, segregate, or classify. Even though the former is plural and the because of is singular? Because the sentence has to be read as a whole. It says limit, segregate, or classify the employees in a way that has an effect on an individual because of the individual's age. But the — You've said it perfectly. It is — It is. Uh, I would grant you that it is a uh, — uh, not the most elegantly written sentence in the world, but I would also urge upon you, Your Honor, that the uh, comma in that sentence — uh, grammatically compels that the because of phrase modifies the to limit, segregate, or classify. Then your, also, then in, your, in, your view is, well, Title VII, the Court really got it wrong. They weren't good grammarians, so they got it wrong. But that's stare decisis, so we'll leave it alone. Because it's the identical wording. The F plot, I think you, you may have more of an argument there, because that's not found in Title VII. But if your, your grammar argument has to be saying, and tell me if I'm wrong about this. The court really got it wrong in Griggs because the, there is no room for an impact test under Title VII any more than under age. But because the court said it in 1971 and continued to say it, we're stuck with it, but we don't have to make the same mistake again. Is that your argument? Justice Ginsburg, I'm not here to challenge Griggs in any respect. I am here to say that the more natural construction of that language was not the one the Court adopted in Griggs. And just as this Court does that on occasion because of other 
materials that influence the construction of a statute. Of course. I mean, we, we look at the whole statute, as you said, not just the comma. That, that, that's the the comma could be outweighed by other factors in one statute and not in the other. And that, that is what the Court has found in its Title VII cases. Comma is not a very big thing, is it? I'm, I'm sorry. I say a comma is not a very big thing. Well, it is part of the statute, and we think it has to be taken into account. But our argument that the Age Discrimination and Employment Act uh, should not be allowed to recognize disparate impact claims does not rest solely on the comma. Our point about Section 4A uh, Justice Kennedy and Justice Ginsburg is that the more natural construction of that language is the an intent requirement is the, as Chief Justice Rehnquist recognized in his separate opinion on certiorari and Geller versus Markham. The fact that the Court found other considerations to lead to a different conclusion in the context of a limited class of Title VII cases does not compel the con- a con- particular construction of the Age Discrimination Employment Act. We have to look at those other considerations that inform the construction of the Age Discrimination Well, I can see you point to F and the reasonable what it written is because there's no counterpart to that in Title VII. That, but that's frankly, I would find it unseemly to take the identical word and say we ignored a comma in one case. If we had paid attention to the comma, we'd have to reach the same result. And I don't think it's unseemly at all, Justice Ginsburg. Unless we were wrong the first time. Well, I'm which, not here to which, take. Which stare decisis would, uh, would, uh, would require us to accept for Title VII, but wouldn't require us to accept for this statute? That's the very point I made to you, and you rejected it. I said, uh, Justice Ginsburg, this Court has, on any number of occasions, and I'll use the Chief Justice's opinions in Fogarty versus Fantasy as an illustration, said that identical language in two separate statutes can be given two different meanings by this Court if a single meaning isn't compelled by the words themselves and if the statute had different purposes or different legislative history. But the, joined that. Yeah, we know that even though Greeks didn't come till some time later, that Congress did copy, when it wrote the AIDS Discrimination Act, it did copy quite deliberately the Title VII language. Th- that is true, but it is also the case that it didn't copy the 4F1 language. It is also the case that at the time... That's a different the, argument, looking at the statute as a whole and saying, whatever the first part means, here we have another part that's absent from Title VII, so we don't have to interpret it the same way. I have two points. Congress... Uh, uh, couldn't have known about Griggs at the time that the, uh, it, it used the language from Title VII in 4A, because Griggs hadn't yet been decided. So that was not a well-established construction by this Court in 1967. But you're also right, and it is our, the essence of our argument here, not to ask the Court to construe 4A in isolation. It's to ask the Court to do as it did in Betts and as it does in a, any number of cases, to construe 4A in light of the other provisions. Justice Scalia has made the point about the discharge for cause. We also make the point about the reasonable factors other than age. That is an intent-based provision, and it shows that this statute at every turn was concerned with employer intent, whether it be good cause, whether it be decisions. What do you do with the argument, which I think is an interesting one, that the, it, it is a reasonable factors other than age? Requirement. That, it is st- if, 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 if there were an intent requirement in the Act, it wouldn't matter whether you're using reasonable factors or not, so long as you're not using age. You know, I don't like people with, uh, with, with blue eyes. That, that ought to be good enough, so long as blue eyes has, has nothing to do with age. As you've pointed out, Justice Scalia, it's perfectly appropriate for Congress to clarify and make unambiguous in, in, in any respect conceivable that it does not want 
any decision that's based upon a reasonable factor to be subject to uh, liability under this statute. Se- secondly, okay, but that argument is equally compatible uh, with the position that your your brother is taking on the other side. And if you take the ambiguity that is left and you combine it with the argument that Justice Ginsburg is making about the parallel language with Title Seven, doesn't it lead you to say, all right, uh, the the parallel language is answered only? Uh, by an argument which, in fact, is, is boils down to an ambiguity, and an ambiguity doesn't defeat the, the policy of construing like statutes, uh, like dra- drafted statutes in a like manner. The, the answer to that's no. The, the reason uh, that it's no is because whatever one thinks the reasonable factor other than age, the word reasonable and the reasonable factors other than age means, it's still a motive-based test. It says based upon what considerations are you taking into account. And why does it have to be a reasonable factor other than age? I, I'm not sure you've answered my, my question. Yeah. Well, the, so the, long as it's not age, the intent, f- oh, the intent factor is not satisfied. I'm sorry. I should be able to use an unreasonable factor other than age. You absolutely can. Section 4F it simply clarifies what's lawful. It doesn't tell us what's unlawful. We only can find what's unlawful by going to 4A and reading it in light of the provisions in 4F. So you say it's a safe harbor provision, that, that for sure if it's a reasonable factor other than age, it's okay. And it, goes, it, it tells us more than that, Justice Scalia. It tells us that intent is what counts. That is, it, 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 interestingly enough, our opponents, in both their opening brief and their reply brief, concede that the phrase based upon reasonable factors other than A's is a reference to an intent requirement. And the whole notion, as Justice Breyer has pointed out through his questioning at the opening of this argument, is what distinguishes a disparate treatment case from an impact case is that intent is irrelevant. So if reasonable factors other than age... I, really underst- I, I must say, I, I don't entirely follow the argument. Supposing you have a test that uh, you have to have an IQ above 110, something rather, in order to avoid discharge. And uh, you find that that uh, is, has a disparate impact on older workers. For some reason, they, they, they lose their intelligence quota or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> the bad news but, Bad news for many. But that, that's the, there are statistics that show that. Could you never, uh, and, and you might come back and say, well, I didn't realize that or something like that. It would be enough for you to sh- show that it, that's totally irrelevant because you just didn't realize that that fact. But why then would would they need to say you have to defend that as a reasonable? Well, there's there's the legislative history and the secretary's report makes quite clear why they put the reasonable in there because they were concerned about the mixed motive cases. I mean, th- this statute was it, when it was originally discussed, a question came up: Does this mean age has to be the only factor that's considered? in order for it to be lawful solely? And the answer to that was the secretary came back and said no. Uh, We recognize that uh, employers have been considering age for a long time. What we think the Congress should prohibit is the use of age as a screening device to filter. Now, it will still be the case, because human beings are human beings, that employers will still be cognizant of employees' age. They can't help but be. But so long as a reasonable factor other than age is the uh, basis of the decision, there shall be no liability for yeah, but why is that necessary to deal with mixed motive? Why, why can't you recognize mixed motive by recognizing unreasonable factors other than age? That's an equally mixed motive if you have an unreasonable factor. Well, uh, uh, every time that the mixed motive uh, issue has been discussed, this Court, in construing Title VII, in construing the National Labor Relations Act, 
uh, in construing uh, the Constitution and Mount, uh, the 1983 and Mount Healthy cases, has always put a verb, uh, an adjective, motivating factor, substantial factor. Uh, Congress is speaking in common sense terms in writing a, these clarifying provisions to make it clear that age had to be the but-for cause uh, and of an employment action, and the employer had to intend it. That we give you the illustration in our brief of Judge Wright's opinion for the D.C. Circuit in Cuddy versus Carmen, which talks about how the two uh, provisions were intended to work in tandem, just as Justice Kennedy's opinion for this court in Betts said that 4F2 and 4A were supposed to work in tandem to define uh, the elements of a plaintiff's case. Could uh, 4A have been written and, and construed uh, without a clarifying provision? Of course. And we would be taking that position, whether that additional language was there or not. But it doesn't weaken our argument in the slightest that Congress went further and, and clarified what the standards would be in, in a mixed motive case. But what, what does seem to weaken the argument is that, leaving even aside the mixed motive argument, you were, you're arguing uh, that a, uh, a reasonable factor test is proof that, in fact, it was a, a, uh, an in, a malicious motive-based uh, liability in the first place. Uh, and it seems to me that what you're saying, if that is true, then any motive other than the proscribed one uh, is going to defeat liability. That's and correct. And the odd thing is that you're saying that by specifying a reasonable factor defense, Congress was indicating that there would be an unreasonable factor defense, because reasonable or unreasonable, if it's not age, there's no liability. And that, it seems to me, is an odd argument to say that by putting in the word reasonable, they are, they are in effect, uh, confirming that an unreasonable defense would be equally good. I think the answer to that question is that uh, reasonableness goes is a permissible the, the reasonableness of a uh, uh, non-discriminatory factor that an employer offers is something that a judge can consider and a, and if he finds a disputed issue of fact a jury can consider in deciding whether or not the non-discriminatory factor that is offered is a pretext for age. In other words, whether he really held that uh, reason. In other words, the reasonableness of the of 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 the uh, of the of the employer's alleged motive goes somehow to the credibility of the employer's argument that it was his motive. Correct. Is that what you're getting at? Correct. Okay. Uh, the, the the less as an evidentiary point, I, I see it as a as a as a logical point for defining the statute. It seems to me but, less clear. Uh, well, I, I understand uh, uh, your point, Justice Souter, and I would be the first to acknowledge this case would be easier. <laughs> if the word reasonable weren't there. Yeah. But what the, all the Court has to decide in this case is whether or not the statute embraces a disparate impact test. Is there any and, way we can go — is there any way, if, if you were finished, were you — Well, I just wanted to make the following point. Whether it's a reasonable motive or an unreasonable motive, it's still a motive. And that's incompatible with disparate impact. The question is one of intent, not one of statistical correlations with age, and not one of accuracy and verifiability of business judgment, which are the two core issues in a disparate impact case. What distinguishes fundamentally a disparate treatment case from a disparate impact case is that in a treatment case, while statistics are, are appropriate statistics that would satisfy Dalbert are admissible and can go to motive, the issue that we argue to the jury is motive. 
We don't argue about whether or not the correlation is so substantial that it itself would state a prima facie violation, and the jury is not allowed to question the employer's business judgment if it finds that, the, that in fact, the employer was not motivated by age. And that it makes a huge difference at a practical level and a legal level uh, in the uh, resolution of age discrimination cases. And that, of course, is, is uh, why we would say that impact claims should not be recognized. I'm sorry, disperse. Is, is there any way, which I'm sure you don't want to bring up necessarily, but is there any way short of saying there's never a disparate impact claim, the problem that you mentioned could be alleviated? If I think, for example, that unlike race or gender, we might go into an ordinary company and find dozens or hundreds or maybe virtually every rule or practice or limitation connected with promotions is correlated with age. It's true. On the other hand, you might have some rules that are really correlated with age very heavily and have no justification. And, and just All right, so is there a way of dealing with that problem short of saying there is never a disparate impact case? Well, there's a, a way of dealing with it. I think Justice O'Connor's opinion for the court in Hazen paper sets it out for us, but it, it doesn't require the recognition of a disparate impact claim. Justice O'Connor's opinion for the court in Hazen paper says that merely showing a correlation uh, is not enough to create an inference of disparate treatment. But the court left open the question, if the employer, the reason they used the factor, there was evidence that, the, is, is that they thought that that factor That, that, that denies my hypothetical. That's saying you're going to go over to intent. What I'm asking you is if, in fact, the language here does justify a disparate impact case, a real one, what I've been talking about throughout is there any way to deal with the problem of practicalities, which is a big one? I, I do not. distinguishes this from race and gender. Well, I, I can only answer the question the following two ways. I don't think Congress contemplated it, which would be my, my legal answer for you, and I can answer it to you practically because I advise employers on these issues. And the way we deal with these issues now is not to change the practices unless we find they're really ridiculous. The way we d- advise our employers to deal with these practices now is to use quotas. That, when, when we advise employers... How, if they're doing a reduction in force as to how to make sh- to reduce the probability of a disparate impact claim in the circuits that have recognized them, we take out little five-year age bands and under 40 and over 40, and we assess who's included with, who, within it and who isn't included within it. And we tell them, if you don't change the numbers, you face a greater exposure to a claim. Now, that is, uh, I guess, one way of, of discouraging employers from having thoughtless, even though not aged by its practice, by the, uh, uh, the sword of a major lawsuit, whether or not that's a legally con- but You don't have the power to do, which this case, I guess, does ask us to do, possibly. And that is also to look at the, 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 the question of the defense here and say, what does it mean in context? I mean, you could say, for example, reasonably necessary means necessary. <laughs> Or you could say that reasonably necessary means a reasonable practice giving weight to the, the employer's uh, uh, reasonable judgment in this. It's, uh, there are a lot of things you could say. So I want your opinion on that. Well, m- my opinion is that the statute doesn't say reasonably necessary. That's what the BFOQ provision says. BFOQ, no, the uh, based on reasonable factors. It's hard to get around that. Based on uh, it's Yeah, based it, 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 it's a phrase. It, it, the entire phrase has to be read. It says based on it. What are the factors 
And that, that's a reference to motive. Uh, we know that from, from the, uh, the ordinary English language. We know it from uh, this Court's own cases talking about factors. And we know it from the legislative history because the Secretary of Labor, d- uh, in studying and reporting to Congress at Congress's legislative direction, distinguished between uh, purposeful uses of age as stereotypes of the abilities of older workers and other forces that adversely impact older workers. And what the Secretary of Labor recommended to deal with your problem uh, that you've pointed out, Justice Breyer, is not a coercive sanction that used uh, made neutral practices with disparate effects illegal. What the Secretary of Labor recommended to Congress and Congress adopted his recommendation in an act of the statute was the promotion of education, training, and manpower programs uh, both to get employers to better understand the talents and capabilities of older workers and where older workers were deficit. I don't know that they Hager, could isn't, isn't, too, but they could. Isn't, isn't the answer to Justice Breyer's concern about the employer who has an unreasonable uh, a criterion that, 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 that in fact has a, a, a bad impact upon, upon older workers, isn't the answer that there is a sanction, and that is a jury is unlikely to believe it. Yes, that's the answer I gave, but he told me and, I, and, any lawyer invi- <laughs> any, any lawyer in advising such a uh, such a uh, such an employer would say, "Boy, if you're dragged into court and nobody's going to believe that you didn't adopt this for the reason of, of getting rid of older employees I, that, that seems to me yeah, enough to solve it's the a problem. much better answer than I gave. I thought he well, it was a very good answer. answer. I wanted to know if there was also any other answer. Yeah, no, you gave that answer. May I just ask you this just to think through the problem a little bit? Assume I agree with you one hundred percent that the reasonable factors other than age defense is a motive based defense. Why couldn't you have a good motive defense? to a prima facie case that's based on objective factors? Well, I don't think it's a defense. Uh, I should state that. I I think that the provision is not in there as an affirmative defense. I think the provision is in there to to, uh, clarify what the scope of the prohibition is. Even if rather than a defense, it's an exclusion, say, a category of cases that are motive. But whether it's a defense or an exclusion, the fact that it is motive-based doesn't seem to me necessarily to mean that the prima facie case must also be motivated. Uh, If we're talking about a a disparate treatment case, I agree with you, Justice Stevens, that in an appropriate case with an appropriate statistical presentation, uh, a judge would be justified in saying that the plaintiff has presented enough evidence to require the employer to respond to a disparate treatment allegation. Now, You know, it's hard to speak uh, universally about statistical presentations. Most of them, in my experience, uh, uh, may satisfy Dalbera, but don't tell us very much about the real (laughs) merits of a case. But if if we adopt as the premise that you've got a particularly powerful statistical presentation, I don't think there's any case law, and certainly not from this Court, because Teamsters and cases like that say that statistics are admissible to prove intent, that, you, that the plaintiff couldn't have statistics alone as their prima facie case, but it'd be, about in, it'd be about intent, and the employer would be responding about its own intent. It wouldn't be responding about, as the uh, employer does in Title VII cases, about, now, we not only had a good motive, here's the proof that we were right about what we were trying to predict, because that is what a, 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 the rebuttal burden in a Title VII disparate impact case. May I ask you? I understand that, but it, but it seems to me that it would be perfectly reasonable if you treat disparate treatment as prima facie, I mean, a disparate impact as prima facie evidence of, of a wrongful intent. But I'm not sure that it, it would not also be an appropriate response, even if disparate treatment was sufficient 
regardless of the actual intent. It seems to me it make good sense for Congress to put this defense in anyway. And then I don't, I'm not sure you've, you've — I'm not sure I understood the question, but I'd like to your opponent is right, that disparate impact, which is totally innocent in terms of any malicious intent, cr- creates a prima facie case. Would it not nevertheless be sensible for Congress to say, yes, all that is true, but if you have the right kind of good motive described in this paragraph, that shall nevertheless be a defense? Well, I, th- I think that would make good sense, but I think that Congress was advised by the Secretary of Labor that we're going to see correlations between age and neutral selection criteria all the time. And I don't think that Congress had in mind that foreseeable adverse impacts, in, not done because of, but in spite of, right. should be a common basis for a prima facie case, whether it be called disparate treatment or disparate impact. May, may I understand better than I have from your argument why you say it's the reasonable factor is not a defense? I mean, e- you're saying it's like the Equal Pay Act, which says, any factor other, any other factor other than sex. And that's always been regarded as a defense to an equal pay charge. You're charged with violation of um, equal pay and you say, no, it was based on any other factor other than sex. Why isn't it, since you're using the Equal Pay Act to say there's no impact theory under the Equal Pay Act, why isn't this equally a defense rather than, as you say, part of the definition. Well, perhaps our uh, argument was not clear. We were not referring to uh, the Equal Pay Act um, in, the, in the way that your question suggests. The only uh, mention we made of the Equal Pay Act was where we made the point uh, that the Court, in, in construing Title VII disparate impact doctrine, has suggested in County of Washington versus Gunther and in Justice Stevens' opinion for the court in Manhart that disparate impact claims would not be cognizable uh, in, the, in the areas of uh, uh, pay disparities correlated with gender uh, because the Bennett Amendment uh, incorporated uh, uh, the effect of the Equal Pay Act defenses uh, into Title VII. It's our opponents who have made arguments based upon Gunther that there's something different about I this. I thought you were both making arguments. I, I, thought, by, I thought, maybe I'm wrong about this, that your opponent was saying that this F provision is just like business necessity under Title VII. And you said, I thought, no, it's as in the Equal Pay Act when where there is no impact test under the Equal Pay Act. I thought that was your argument. Maybe I misread you. But I thought it no, that, that was not our argument, <laughs> Justice Ginsburg. Our argument was that the, the reason, one of the reasons why this Court sh- can and should rule that the Age Discrimination Act doesn't recognize uh, disparate impact claims and be completely consistent and respectful of Griggs is that the Court in Title VII cases has recognized that other provisions of the statute may, may cause Griggs to yield to other uh, congressional manifestations of intent requirements in specific areas. And then let's just take the two statutes. One says reasonable factor and the other says any factor, any other factor other than sex. Same kind of provision. Why in one case is it a defense and the other case part of a, a, the, the definition of the well, I, I think the, the answer to that is, is that the, the uh, court construed the four uh, so-called affirmative defenses 
um, as uh, affirmative defenses under the Equal Pay Act. This Court in Betts recognized that when Congress wrote 4F, that it didn't intend for all of the provisions in 4F to be affirmative defenses. Some of them were affirmative defenses. This Court in Criswell held that the BFOQ was an affirmative defense. 4F2 was held not to be an affirmative defense, but was held to be an exemption that redefined the elements of a prima facie case. And our suggestion to the Court is, is that since the reasonable factor other than age provision is not a provision in which the employer is trying to justify the use of age, the employer is saying our decision should be held lawful because it's based upon factors other than age, that it's not appropriate to characterize that as an affirmative defense, but rather — I don't follow why it isn't to, wouldn't, you couldn't make the very same argument about the Equal Pay Act. Well, I, su- I suppose if I had been before the Court in 1974 arguing in that case, I, w- I might have made that argument. Well, that's another one where we're stuck with it because the story decides this. Well, no, we just recognize that we have a different statute, and we also have a different Court. I mean, the fact Thank of the matter Thank you, Mr. Nager. Uh, Mr. Crabtree, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Justice Scalia, you asked earlier why we should not construe the good cause provision as just uh, something similar to the reasonable factors provision. The difference is the absence of the words otherwise prohibited, the same words that did not exist in F2 when Betts was decided. Without the words otherwise prohibited, there would be a good argument that the reasonable factors defense was not a defense. But because of those two critical words, it is inescapable that there has already been a violation of the Act. Second, Fogarty was a copyright case, not another discrimination case, and trying to import the attorney's fee provision, prevailing party uh, fee provision, into in that case did not make sense, as it does here, because the idea in Title VII share a common purpose and a common legislative history and a common language. In um, Gunther, the Court did not hold that there was no disparate impact for uh, wage disparities under Title VII. What the Court held was that the defense was any other factor and that that applied or suggested that it might apply in a facially neutral practice. But the Court also said in Gunther that the, def- that the defendant, in proving its defense, must establish that its factors were legitimate and bona fide. Here, of course, we had the additional word reasonable. So mere legitimacy or merely being bona fide cannot be enough. Um, while the, uh, as counsels conceded in mixed motive cases, the Court's analysis is whether or not but for, we, the but for analysis must be conducted, and whether or not the employer's um, motives cause the employer's action is at issue. And again, going back to the words, otherwise prohibited, we don't have that under the reasonable factors defense for the idea. I have no more to offer. Thank you, Mr. Crabtree. Thank you very much. The case is submitted.